Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called, Is it time to rethink the precautionary principle? In the chair is Max Sanderson. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, everyone. In this morning session, we're going to be looking at um, the precautionary principle. My name is Max Sanderson, and I'm the editor of weekly podcasts at The Guardian. I look after a suite of podcasts. I suppose most relevant to this session is Science Weekly. Um, And uh, last night, just as a a little kind of exercise, I looked back through my emails to see when I first kind of pitched this session to um, Alistair and Ella and Claire. Um, And it was in June 2020 which was feels like a very, very, very long time ago. Um, so much so I actually forgot that I had pitched it, as, as had they. So when they emailed me and told me to have a look at the blurb and see if it needed updating, I had to remind them that I was the one who actually wrote it. And I was slightly concerned that it would need some updating, but when I read back over it, it sort of became obvious that it didn't really need any updating. And I think that says a couple of things. One is that I'm a very lazy writer who writes things so open-endedly that I don't have to update stuff. Um, but I think kind of most importantly, it speaks to this kind of ever-present kind of universality of what people call the precautionary principle. And I think the last kind of 18 months is is very much testament to that. So I'm not going to sort of take up time explaining what it is. Uh, I think the brilliant panel would do a lot better, uh, a better job kind of doing that succinctly. The things that I kind of want to really dig into in this session is, you know, has what happened has happened over the last kind of 18 months given us um, any kind of further reason to kind of rethink it? And if so, you know, in what ways? Um, but also, I suppose, um, you know, and, and I look forward to hearing from you guys about, you know, the the sort of perpetrators of the so-called precautionary principle often, you know, refer to it as some kind of objective, apolitical kind of risk-averse device. And so something I'm really interested in is is looking at the sort of political side of it. How has this, you know, supposedly objective thing become so politicized? Um and helping to me to kind of explore some of this, and I'm sure more, uh, is a really brilliant panel, and I'm, I'm very thankful to all of them for being here. Um, and so in the order they'll be speaking, first up will be Professor Bill DeRodi, who's on the far left. Um, well, I shouldn't say on the far left. He's on my far left. Um, <laughs> he may be on the far left, I don't know. doesn't mean anything anymore. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, so Bill is the Chair of International Relations, uh, Languages and International Studies at the University of Bath. Uh, His main research interest is to examine the causes and consequences of perceptions of risk and how these are framed and communicated. Uh, He's also a regular speaker at the Battle of Ideas, so it's lovely to have him back. Um, After Bill will be Professor Shanetra Gupta, who's on my uh, immediate left. Uh, Shanetra is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at the University of Oxford and an award-winning novelist. Um, Shanetra looks at the likes of malaria and influenza, and was also one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which argued for and uh, argued for 
an alternative approach to lockdowns. Uh, and then our third and final speaker will be Dr. Casper Hewitt. Uh, he's a lecturer in the Water Group and Euro Aqua Program Director at Newcastle University. Uh, he's also the director of The Great Debate, a community organization that has maintained a space for public debate in the northeast of England. And his current research focuses on engineering interventions to improve the environment. Um, so yeah, please join me in welcoming our lovely speakers. Um, so as per the usual format, we're going to do some kind of introductory pitches. Um, I'm going to give the speakers up to eight minutes, uh, and then we will immediately open up to you guys on the floor. Yeah, so first up, Bill. Thank you, Max. Um, well, I guess the time to rethink the precautionary principle was about 20 years ago <laughs> when I first looked into it. And it's a bit surprising revisiting it after such a long time. And uh, maybe at the end, I'll come up with a few views as to what has changed in the interim. Uh, as the blurb suggests, it by and large emerges in Germany in the 1970s, and there's a reason for that. It's very important to understand the reason, and that is that Germany, after the Second World War, was by and large a depoliticized state. It had no teeth in world international organizations, and it was in the vanguard, if you like, of a kind of new managerial politics. And um, it kind of fit the, the green agenda that tried to sit in between the, the dominant political parties there. Um, it really comes of age, though, after the end of the Cold War. Um, and so you've got the 1992 Rio Earth Summit Declaration about the precautionary principle. There's something called the Windspread uh, Declaration. And the European Commission produced a communication in the year 2000. And there's a reason for that chronology as well, which is that the end of the Cold War led to a depoliticized world for the rest of the world. You know, the, the confusion of left and right, the dissolution and uh, reorienting of the old um, mainstream political parties and a kind of scrabble for the center ground politics. And risk management came very much to the forefront as a new organizing principle for a world that didn't have the old Soviet enemy anymore. I think it was at that time mainly invoked by fairly marginal groups, um, environmentalist campaigners, and by and large I would describe it as a claim on decision making. I'm not a headbanger. It is entirely sensible uh, and reasonable in specific circumstances to apply a modicum of caution to what you're doing. But that's not what the precautionary principle is really about. Rather, I would describe it as a power grab by what saw themselves as new voices, but really were marginalized voices, particularly in the aftermath of the dissolution of left-wing and right-wing politics. So it gave a voice to supposed ethicists, experts, and above all, sought to invoke the public in decision-making. There is no single definition. You can look on Wikipedia or anywhere else. By and large, it's a triple negative. It says when we do not have sufficient evidence that something is not harmful, then we ought not to do it. And if you have a triple negative phrase and you simplify it, really it distills down to action without evidence is justified. There's a lot of challenges to it. How much evidence do you need before you take action? What are the measures to be taken and who by? 
it also presumes that prevention is better than cure. Now, it may come as a surprise to you. I, I do a whole class with my students on is prevention better than cure and when, because everyone assumes that that's common sense. Um, but the reality is prevention is only ever better than cure when the thing you're trying to prevent has a fairly elevated incidence rate and the cure that you're proposing is known to be effective. And in many instances, when the precautionary principle has been applied, neither of those factors has been particularly present. Cure, by the way, is targeted on the person that needs it and discreet in terms of time, whereas prevention has to apply to everybody and presumably for all time. It's a kind of, it's, it moralizes debates as well, because then if you're not taking the necessary preventative measures, you're seen as uh, being immoral. The other basic problems, it's illogical. You cannot apply the precautionary principle to itself. If applying the precautionary principle creates worse outcomes, ought you to be applying the precautionary principle? And it also misses the fact that not taking action is an act in and of itself. Not taking action may also lead to unexpected, unfortunate, and unforeseen consequences. It's used to justify pretty much anything. The uh, Cambridge academic David Runciman noted in one of his books how Tony Blair had invoked the precautionary principle to go to war against Saddam in Iraq because his argument was that not acting would lead to greater problems. Superficially, it appears as a debate over safety, uh, and the advocates of it uh, tried to suggest that it was about humility, about scientists accepting that they didn't have complete control. Although I would like to add that those who advocate it are far from humble in what they suggest the alternatives to be. In conclusion, my key points are this. It actually always has two key elements. The first is to project. It projects worst case scenarios. It asks you to go beyond the available evidence, to include what is sometimes described as unknown evidence or even anecdote. Um, and by focusing on worst case scenarios, it avoids discussions about what's most likely. It's a shift from a kind of probabilistic understanding of the world where you look at what is to a speculative what if. But there is no limit to speculation. And if you layer what if upon what if, you basically paralyze everything. And the second core element of it is that it invokes alternative voices into the debate. Initially, as I described, that was the public. But increasingly, that's come to be the public has come to be bypassed completely. Uh, and now it's most often the science, whatever that means. If you look at some of the key reports that emerged in the aftermath of this kind of early period, the Phillips inquiry into bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, the Stewart inquiry into mobile phones, or the Royal Society inquiry into genetically modified crops, all of them had those key elements to look at unproven evidence and anecdote and to give a voice famously to relatives of people who had lost a loved one supposedly from Crooksfeld Jakob disease. It claims to reinvigorate politics by engaging the public in dialogue and to make people appear on panels with scientists. But as I noted, the public is now bypassed altogether. Science is not a democratic process. It doesn't matter what your gender is, your racial background, where you stand on the planet, 
you know, it's not the Earth that goes around the sun every day. It, it appears that way because the Earth is rotating. It's not a democracy. Science is not a democracy. And to suggest that it's good for science to include the public in a kind of democratic debate about science is both bad for democracy and bad for science. I would suggest the reverse is what is required. We actually need people engaged in politics, and then they might be a bit more astute and interested in science. It's also um, negative about where we stand. Ulrich Beck, the famous German sociologist, described it, uh, him challenging the optimistic fallacy that scientists have. And Andy Sterling, who's a contemporary advocate of the precautionary principle, and I was reading one of his latest pieces, describes it as the futility of control. And he wants to counterpose that very directly to the slogan, take back control, which as you all know, was the uh, Leave campaign. Just to segue into Sinetra, it's arbitrary. Yeah, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunology said there was no need to vaccinate children. And then the government decided on a precautionary basis and the government said, I oh, will just ask other people to comment on that and push through it anyway. And then you'll know that the AstraZeneca vaccine was withdrawn by particular countries on a precautionary basis. It is not a principle. It is not an approach. It is political game playing purporting to be based on a scientific basis. Thank you, Bill. Uh, lots to think about there. Um, so, Shanetra. Um, right. Well, uh, there is a lot to think about there. But if one were to think of the precautionary principle in uh, purely practical, logical terms, um, for me, it translates as the minimization of risk under uncertainty. So it's essentially, how does one navigate a landscape in a fog? And I wanted to just make first two points about the landscape of risk, which seems to have been um, buried or indeed maybe you know, bypassed in a lot of the discussion that's happening. First of all, first point is that the landscape of risk is multidimensional. When it comes to, to COVID, um, you know, we, we can't really think of any intervention or we shouldn't be thinking of an intervention in a single dimension as we've been enjoined to do. So what we're doing is we're taking this very complex landscape and projecting it onto a single plane and looking at it along the single dimension of will these interventions do something to um, stop the spread of infection? And you know that that is simply not the way to, to look at um, to, to minimize risk because effectively what it's doing is it's asking you to, to follow a path that could actually lead you into a very deep valley because as we know, these interventions themselves have very significant costs. And it appears to be in certain individual and corporate interests to keep our gaze focused on this single dimension. And that's something I think perhaps we could discuss. The other important point with regard to risk is that the landscape of risk is very different for different people. So one could argue that the precautionary principle was correctly applied to those of us whose livelihoods and health uh, would be unaffected by the measures that were put in place. But for the majority, the landscape dips very sharply in terms of losses when these interventions are imposed. So in other words, 
the precautionary principle, even at this very basic sort of practical level, can be applied locally, but not globally. So that's the landscape. But what about the fog, the uncertainty? I think one of the biggest problems we've faced is that the schedule of uncertainty and the perception of uncertainty um, has been distorted, again, by people, I think, who's, in whose interests it was to do so, or, I suppose, people who didn't quite um, engage with the problem um, in a, what I would consider a scientific way. So, for example, the uncertainty about the nature of the virus was played up. We knew right at the outset what the age dependence was of, of, of death rates. Uh, we knew that it was a coronavirus, you know, within days. We knew exactly where it located within the coronavirus sort of family. It was very close to the original SARS virus, but it was also um, very similar to some of the other seasonal coronaviruses which we know about because we've been living with them for a very long time. What that meant is that we could have um, reliably, or, or we could, it was, it, there was more of a probability that this virus would end up in an endemic state that we enjoy with these other coronaviruses. It was likely that first infection gave you a lot of immunity against severe disease and death but that immunity against infection was likely to be short-lived and that that principle could be carried over to vaccines because vaccines effectively at best mimic what natural immunity can do. So there was no reason to expect vaccines to be able to uh, uh, stall the spread of the virus. But generally speaking, there was this idea that we didn't know about this virus. It was a, you know, unknown entity. and We didn't know we, we had to act in under that uncertainty. And, you know, last year, this time, we had a bunch of people, um, respected scientists, telling us that we didn't even know whether natural immunity existed to this virus. This was, you know, I mean, as I said, we had the other seasonal coronaviruses to compare it to, but also the work of many laboratories, including our own, had shown, demonstrated that you made neutralizing antibodies to this virus. Um, so that uncertainty was clearly um, played up. At the same time, what we really were uncertain about was actually the effects of the NPIs, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, not just on, on, the well, on the course of the virus. That was the thing that we were most uncertain about, is would we be able to stop an epidemic using these NPIs? What we were more certain about is that these NPIs were going to cause a lot of harm globally. And that likelihood was ignored. It was literally not put on the table. So we have this sort of talk between risk, uh, which was squashed into a sing on, onto a single dimension, and then the uncertainties, which were um, also the schedule of which were, I think was distorted. And really then, how would you apply the precautionary principle if you, if you did have a clear idea about these things anyway, given that there is this uncertainty, what I think we were beholden to come up with was were strategies that were robust to some of these uncertainties. And what could we have done in that regard? Well, one strategy that we suggested about a year ago uh, through the Great Barrington Declaration, although we were not the only people to suggest it, was, uh, there were many other um, scientists and, and other um, individuals who 
um, came up with the idea of focus protection. Since we knew, what, what were we certain about? We knew who um, would, was likely to die from being infected. Could we not invest in focus protection of these individuals? Given all the other uncertainties, was it not a proper application of the precautionary principle to direct investment into protecting those who are likely to die of infection? And since the vaccines have come along, that has been made much easier. The vaccines enable focus protection, but what we've done with the vaccines is try and achieve something that vaccines, these sorts of vaccines can't achieve, which is to halt infection altogether. The other thing we could have done was invest in hospital capacity to create resilience instead of investing in NPIs, which, about which there was so much uncertainty. So, it, instead of investing in these things, that uh, these uh, elements which are somewhat robust to the uncertainties that were real and not so real, we invested in NPIs, which were the least certain methods of dealing with the crisis and most certain to cause overall harm. So I'm afraid to say we were led down the valley into the fog. Thank you, Sinetra. Um Last but certainly not least, Casper. Uh, okay, I'm I'm going to talk a bit more generally because uh, I mean the uh, coronavirus is is not my area of expertise. I'm also going to apologise for uh, not having followed the precautionary principle last night, and that I feel a bit hungover this morning. I don't know about <laughs> the rest of it, but um, anyway, uh, the, yes, I, I had a. A few, a few thoughts. I thought I'd pick up just on a couple of things first that um, came out of, of the introductions there. Um, Bill's point about the about not taking action has consequences because I think this is a particularly in, interesting one, and I think this runs through um, lots of lots of things that have, have happened since the, the precautionary principle was first invoked. Um, Going to take a, give a couple of examples. Um, the uh, the golden rice example. I don't know if you're aware of it. It was developed over twenty years ago now. This was a, a genetically modified crop that um, was is held up as as a superfood. Um, in particular, it was uh, useful for um, vitamin A deficiency. And basically, the objections to it and the invocation of the precautionary principle held back development of that um, by at least 10, 10 years. Um, and if it's hard to actually gauge the number of deaths, the number of deaths that you could directly attribute to that, are, yeah, it's hard to count, but it's, it's huge numbers. Another example I thought was quite an interesting one was the Fukushima um, nuclear accident in 2011. Because following that, the um, Japanese government took the decision to close down their nuclear um, capability. Now, that's had huge consequences, uh, almost impossible to work out. But e even just one study looking at the three years following the accident was able to directly attribute around 1,300 deaths to the increase in cost of electricity <laughs> and a couple of cold winters over three years. 
Uh, whereas the number of deaths that could be directly attributed to the accident in the same period was a tenth of that, it was about 130. So I think it's really interesting, you know, these aren't really about weighing up risks. Um, weighing up risks is something that engineers always do. I've, I've come from a, an engineering department. This, this is actually historically what engineers have always done. This doesn't require the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is something else. You know, you actually look at the history of engineering. I was talking about this um, just last night. I mean, if you think about building the bridges, I mean, the Time Bridge um, in Newcastle, which is, you know, famous landmark. Um, when they built that, you know, people were dying left, right and center. That was just normal when you were building these sorts of structures at that time. If you build a bridge today, that would be totally unacceptable. All, all the things that we've put in place over the 100 years or so since that were built, um, means that that doesn't happen you know we actually have much greater awareness of health and safety all sorts of procedures that stop that happening when i worked in the steel industry in the 1980s you know it was normal for a few people to die each year you know in, in the plants it, it was it wasn't something that we didn't we weren't concerned about but it was just just a reality um so so yes i, th I think you actually look at the the changes that engineering and, and, and science have brought about over the years actually mean the number of deaths reduces. You know, this, this is the direction that progress takes us in. Precautionary principle has nothing to do with that. It, it doesn't, doesn't um, impact on that at all. I thought also, I, th I thought, um, I mean, Bill's point about the, the depoliticized de period, the end, end of the Cold War, I think is, is a correct one. But I actually think fundamentally the precautionary principle is a political principle. It's got nothing to do with science. It's got nothing to do with, with engineering. Um, so I um, just wanted to pick up on that one. I think more generally, I think it's a really paralyzing principle. Because it, it is all about not doing something. It's never about doing... Well, actually, you said about going to war. So sometimes it can be invoked the other way around when it's... When it's, uh, when it's uh, yes, it's uh, appropriate, deemed appropriate to do so. When it's uh, convenient to do so, I guess, I guess it, it can be invoked in that way. Um, oh, yes, the other thing, because um, Shinetra was saying about minimising of risk under un uncertainty. And again, I would say, well, you know, science and engineering, this is actually what we do. We don't need the precautionary principle. The, you know, the precautionary principle has nothing to do with that. Um, it was an interesting thing. There's, there's, this, there's this brief. I just thought I'd wave, wave it about because it's, it's colourful. It's uh, this brief, which was um, from the EU 2017, the precautionary principle, decision-making under uncertainty. There's a, there's a couple of things that are quite interesting here about burden of proof. Um, I, won't, I won't read the whole thing out because it's about 15 pages long, but, but there's, there's, a, there's a thing here. The precautionary principle could also shift the burden of proof to the defendant. It's actually talking about um, court ruling that government was neglecting its duties to address climate change adequately, adequately and ordered it to curb Netherlands emissions. So it's, it's actually talking about the burden of proof being, being reversed. Well, I, I would pose it the other way around. I actually think the burden of proof should be reversed. Um, it should be the advocates of the precautionary principle who should have to prove that there is some sort of harm in, in order to stop experimentation. And that's the opposite of what the precautionary principle does. And I would actually pose it that, that way around. 
Um, I think that's all, that's all I want to say for now. I, I want to hear from you. <laughs> Thank you, Casper. <clears throat> so there's quite a, a wide array of, of uh, subject areas we've covered. Um, yeah, so basically I want to come out for questions. Professor Derodier talked about the relationship between, but also the difference between politics and science in the context of the precautionary principle. And there's an old sort of slogan in, that's been attributed to many people, uh, which is never explain, never apologize, which I think can be a very healthy approach to politics and polemics, but doesn't really work in science. And it sits uncomfortably at best in a recent crisis situation where science and politics have had to work in tandem. So with that in mind, I, I did want to take this opportunity to ask you, Professor Gupta, uh, to respond to a couple of the, of the criticisms that have been levelled at uh, your proposed uh, approach to the recent crisis. One of which is that last year your assessment of the infection fatality rate was out by an entire order of magnitude. And the other of which is that neither the proposed beneficiaries of focused protection nor the means by which they were going to be protected in the absence of a vaccine were ever adequately defined by the proponents of focused protection. Thank you. Do the panel agree that the so-called precautionary principle is just an example of the fallacy of argument for ignorance and that a good communication strategy for dealing with that appeal to ignorance, which is usually intended to suppress critical scrutiny of ideas intended to benefit, um, usually corruptly, the people advancing them, uh, is to and point out the risks of applying that so-called principle and the, risk, the serious risk of harm of doing so. Thank you very much. If you could hand the microphone to the guy behind you. Thanks very much. Uh, this is a question for Professor Sinatra Gupta. Um, this is maybe a bit of a difficult question to answer, but do you think that uh, the government's change in uh, sort of tact in dealing with the pandemic was due to primarily scientific or political concerns? Because obviously they initially had one approach, which in my opinion was quite reasonable and voluntary uh, guidelines for dealing with the pandemic. And they eventually changed to um, an enforced and um, much more draconian approach. And then they also chose to ignore uh, your proposed approach. Do you think that was because they were perhaps, uh, in my opinion, and I'm guessing yours, wrongly convinced by a group of scientists that they must take this course of action? Uh, or was it because, which is what I think to be the case, they saw that people were very afraid of this virus and they saw that the approach, which was more uh, sort of strict, would be more popular and that's when they went for. This is, sorry, just to, to add one more thing. Uh, I don't think they actually have many convinced principles in this government. I think they are pretty much driven by what is likely to keep them in power and so that's why I would lean towards the latter. But I'm curious as to your opinion because you're much more embedded in this than I am. Thank you. Did we have one more? There was a question here. Yeah. Uh, hello, yes, Kerry Dingle from the Education Charity World Right and Film Crew. Um, given that the panel have more or less all said that it is a, uh, the precautionary principle is a political um, strategy, and I think Bill has said, and Casper has implied, it is wholly anti democratic in terms, and probably a senator as well, in terms of our needs, is it ever useful? I mean, do we want it at all? For in my in my experience in dealing um, on international issues, for example, the precautionary principle was used 
And I think, as Casper said, always to stop development. So, for example, when DDT was, it was understood that it had never been harmful, in fact, could have saved millions of lives in terms of stopping malaria. It wasn't reintroduced, you know, to wipe out the carrying of malaria. Extraordinary. So in terms of weighing up the death figures, I mean, it's just horrendous what this strategy of stopping us developing and putting humanity first um, has done. But I, I'd like to know, has it got any merit ever? Great question. Shanetra, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to respond? I don't know, where do I start? There's Wherever you are. <laughs> okay, the infection fatality rate. You want, um, I don't think uh, that my estimate of the infection fatality rate was incorrect in that um, we don't really know how many people have died from coronavirus. Um, what I, it's true that if you just take a mean, a population mean, which is actually a very... Um, not a very helpful way of even thinking about risk. Again, as I said, risk is one of the things that we knew about this disease right at the outset is that risk is highly stratified by age. So taking a mean risk approach in any case is actually not a very sensible thing to do. Uh, but even in regard to that, in May last year, what I came up as a mean average risk which of course varies from population to population, I don't think was so wildly off the mark. Um, but what's more important is that actually the risk to the average person is very, very low. And that's the important message to get across, is that some people, the risk is very high. We know who they are. They're the elderly, they're people with comorbidities, they're elderly with comorbidities. You know, there's a whole, we actually do know uh, quite finely and precisely what the risk, how an individual's risk now, um, what it is. So that's what we should be focusing on. So then that brings us to the question of can we have a, a, uh, a strategy that is robust to the uncertainties of will there be a second wave, will there be a third wave, whatnot. Um, can we protect these individuals? And uh, Actually, if you look in the Great Barrington Declaration on the website, there are some quite specific suggestions. But the truth is that what was laid out there was, was a strategy. It wasn't, or I mean, it, it wasn't a, a fully fledged one because it was, that's in the hands of the experts to come up with something that will actually, you know, a person who works in care home will be able to tell you exactly how to enact that. What I think, and later I started, um, presenting my position on it anyway, in a different way, which is that actually the main point here is that lockdowns are not uh, a, a, an option. Lockdowns will cre create so much collateral damage that, that we can't do that. So what can we do instead? This focus protection, which to me at a very broad level seems to be a subset of lockdown, it's a focused lockdown, uh, seem to be a more robust way of moving forwards. But I think for me, the main kind of emphasis really in what, what I was trying to, where I was, my position was just that lockdowns are going to cause so much harm and so much damage that as I've said, it's like taking a hammer to hit, get rid of a fly on a pane of glass. 
So given that, then you have to think of what are the alternatives. And to be uh, you know, honest, actually proposing focus uh, protection in countries where people live in circumstances where that's not even feasible is, is actually, I mean, I myself have problems with that. So it's more really to say that we have to be very, very careful in thinking of this as a multi-dimensional landscape, where if you travel down one axis, you might think that lockdowns and other NPIs will do something, which now actually we have less uncertainty about that. We know that they don't work quite as well as people. Um, no, we know that. I think that the uncertainty there is, is diminishing. Um, but we do, it, it does, if you look in another dimension, you're falling into this very deep valley where the harms have lockdown. Do you want to quickly respond to that? There was a question. What's going on in their heads? I wish I knew. <laughs> you tell me. Uh, Bill, do you want to respond to uh, Well, I'll do a quick plug because, I mean, Sinetra's published a lot on this matter. I published just one paper called Handling Uncertainty and Indeterminacy in Relation to the Coronavirus Pandemic in an APA journal. I forget which one. But one of the main points I make there is that um, you know, there's, there's still a lot that's not known about the virus, how it acts, what organs it acts on. Um, you know, Sinetra's pointed to the broad contours that we do know. And it's very interesting how, if you follow the debate, people are now pretending that they did know something retrospectively when you know at the time they didn't and made it fairly clear. So there's a lot of chopping and changing of, you know, and attacking people based on positions, um, at using information that was not known at the time when people were making particular arguments. Nobody comes out of this looking glorious. The WHO have made loads of mistakes. Boris has made loads of mistakes. I think, you know, we do have to accept that that's the nature of uncertainty and to put, put you know, proposals into the public domain, they ought to be taken seriously, not silenced by Google or whatever other, you know, social media decides that the Great Barrington Declaration should not appear um, on your social media feed. So I think that's a bigger problem. Um, there was a point made at the back about people being very afraid of the virus. I don't know. I think we should take a step back here. I think, you know, there's a tendency to project fear onto the public and for governments to presume what public perceptions are. And that goes back to my depoliticized point, because we're, you know, the elites are, are increasingly disconnected from the public mood and public opinion. Everything catches them off guard and comes as a shock, whether it's the Brexit vote or Trump. And they talk more and more about how to handle shock and surprise in the world. Whereas actually what you're really seeing is steady drip by drip, steady drift of culture. And they don't know what's happening right under their nose. And then they wake up one day when people do something completely unexpected and think, you know, where did that come from? Um, you know, China, as we know, has a very different approach to handling pretty much anything um, and went about handling it the way it believed to be necessary and appropriate. Um, and we know Neil Ferguson has made the point, I think, in The Times about how you know, they noticed how China responded and probably took a modicum of courage from that in responding the same way here. Is it ever useful, Kerry's point? I think, you know, you decide when, you know, if it, is it useful to speculate beyond the available evidence? Well, you know, maybe sometimes, you know, you can have thought experiments that way, but you need to be careful 
but your speculation and your presumptions don't lead you to then taking steps and actions that themselves have adverse consequences. And I think invoking the precautionary principle um, brings that in. Um, invoking the public, you know, speaking on behalf of the public, which is where the environmentalist lobby first started in this. And increasingly, people speak on behalf of the, of the public, the animals and the planet, all these great things that can't speak for themselves, or the public can if it were engaged politically. But, you know, that gives you the veneer of a, speaking on behalf of an enormous constituency. I'm here saving the planet. Um, but it's a constituency that can't speak on, on behalf of itself. Um, very final point. I think there was a point about corruption at the front. And we must understand this is not a debate between a kind of something must be done lobby and, uh, oh, it's all the nanny state kind of reaction. Everybody now accepts, to some extent, the precautionary principle and looks to you know, go beyond available evidence and invoke particular reasons and constituencies that they're speaking on behalf of. Uh, and in, I hope in my concluding remarks, I'll point to how damaging and dangerous that can truly become. Great, thank you. Casper, while Casper's uh, responding, have we got any more questions? And we'll get some mics out and keep things going. So if we could have a microphone up the front here. Um, okay, a uh, couple of things to respond to, but actually just picking up on what Bill just said, because um, everyone accepts the, well, I, I don't. I mean, I, I think that this is, uh, and this, this is a point I'd like to make really clearly. I mean, picking up on, on Kerry's question, I don't think it has any merit ever. I, I, and I, I think let's, let's make that absolutely clear. I think looking at risks and weighing up risks and looking at evidence is something that we should do and that we always do but the precautionary principle adds nothing to it at all uh, and all it can ever do is say don't do something it, you know it doesn't have a positive content I, I i can't see can't see it at all i mean further i mean yeah do we want it at all no um you know i i think you know this this question about science-led policy you know this, this is this is a big thing i mean <laughs> I'm an engineer. It's not that I don't think that engineers should be listened to at all or that scientists, you know, of, of course you want to look at the evidence as part of what I'm saying. But this idea of science-driven policy or science-led policy is hugely problematic. I'm absolutely against it. I actually think policy is about politics. You know, it's about weighing up lots of, of different aspects of things. You know, any decision that you make, whether it's about a virus or, or whether it's about climate change or whatever, these are political decisions that have many, many consequences. Um, then they're not just to do with the science. They're to do with society. They're to do with people. They're, you know, and, and so the, yeah, I absolutely reject that, that paradigm, which, which has, has become really central. Um, and that does echo Bill's points about the, these things being accepted. I've made a note here about something must be done. Um, isn't the precautionary principle saying, no, nothing must be done? <laughs> it's, it's, that's what it feels like to me. Um, just one other thing. Um, I don't want to talk too long because, again, want to hear what you're saying. But the, um, on this thing of fear, though, I mean, I question a little bit what Bill was saying. I mean, you know, I think of myself as quite a rational person. And I really did try and, and stay as rational as possible. But it was bloody frightening. I mean, you know, I, I, I was frightened. 
I tried not to be, but it was really hard not to be, especially when you're isolated. Uh, and th and that's a really interesting thing. I mean, it's great sort of breaking out of that again and starting to be socialized again. But the, the fact that we were unsocialized made it more frightening. It's very hard to remain a political, rational animal when, when, you, when you're stuck at home and you're not actually seeing real people and you're not engaging. Uh, and I thought that, that was just a, an interesting aspect of, of the, the last year and a half. Thanks, Casper. So first question here, and then we'll take one at the back. I just, I wondered what the panel thought the experience of the pandemic tells us about the relationship between um, science and social science and the responsibility of social scientists in these uh, circumstances. I mean, I'm, well, my field is sociology and social policy. I kind of hang my head in shame, rather, because we've been very quiet, it seems to me. Uh, now, partly, no one has seemed to want to listen to um, social scientists apart from the behavioral psychology lot, um, which has been about a different thing. Um, but also, the, the approach by many people in my field seems to have been, oh, well, let's sort of wait and see what happens. Isn't this an interesting social experiment? And then we can look at and say, oh, isn't that bad? Or, you know, <laughs> yes. we, we didn't need evidence to know. I mean, any good sociologist could have looked at what lockdown and the associated MPIs would do and say, this is going to have consequences, right? And in the context of uncertainty, what we are choosing to do as a society, which is what made me really frightened, is throw known harms at that. You know, you, mm. you don't need to, you don't need to have a GCSE in sociology to know that, you know, shutting schools for weeks on end, um, not treating patients for diseases that are going to get worse, etc. You know, all of those things, the, the, the consequences of atomization are going to be bad in a number of ways. And then that leads me a bit to the discussion about focused protection, because what I've always found strange is, you know, as a sociologist, I can't tell you anything about a virus, right? I'm, I have been dependent on scientists to know anything about the virus or COVID, the disease. But why should scientists be responsible for coming up with focused protection strategies? That is surely our job as mm -hmm. people who know about policy. And if you think about practical, you know, how would you shield care homes? How would you build fever hospitals? You know, that could have been one thing. How would you work with society? I mean, just to, just to finish on an anecdote, in, in my little town, it's a little market town, I've been really intrigued by the fact that when we've been hit by the virus twice, first in, uh, well, February, March 2020, so before lockdown, actually, because a lot of people had commuted, um, and then in the second wave, you know, before Christmas, again, before the, uh, before the second lockdown, how many have there been? Third lockdown, whatever. Um, <laughs> that's when people have been scared, and that's when they changed their behavior. And then, as levels of illness receded, people kind of behaved a bit differently. So you had the, the government restrictions, but actually social life showed you that, that kind of intuitive way of people responding quite sensibly, I think. In, in the most part, to, to danger. And I think we could have thought of that in terms of focus protection as well. So when do you give advice to vulnerable people? Now is quite a bad time to kind of go out, take care for a few weeks. And then when do you change that advice? You don't have to lock them all up all the time. Mm -hmm. And all of these questions never really got asked. And it just seemed like the only thing people ever said about focus protection is, ha, 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 where's your 10-point plan? And then they wouldn't have listened to it anyway. So I, anyway, I'll shut up now. 
Yeah, good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a question particularly for Professor Gupta about the Great Barrington Declaration and your multi-dimensional approach. Um, I ask the question because partly as an accident of geography, um, uh, I live in northern Italy and was in northern Italy in February when the first lockdowns were emerging. And because I've been looking at the precautionary principle um, for many years academically, I was asked by different media organizations to kind of respond to what was happening firstly with regional lockdowns and then very quickly a week later, as you'll know, the first uh, national lockdown in the world. I mean, not even China had a national lockdown. So I was kind of struggling with um, how to respond uh, to things as they were emerging. And initially, I argued, based on uh, my rejection of the precautionary principle, that it was irrational to close down large parts of Italy where there was no evidence uh, of a coronavirus. Um, but I did argue that in some, uh, there was a very small uh, town close to uh, Padua in northern Italy, um, that basically the military surrounded it and stopped people uh, traveling from that small town because it had extremely high uh, infection rates. And I basically argued that um, that was pretty rational to actually stop people traveling um, from that small town because they had uh, very high infection rates. And that based on my rejection of the precautionary principle, uh, it didn't make sense to lock down places uh, where there was no evidence of the virus, particularly islands like Sicily, uh, a long way away. Um, but maybe it did make sense to stop people traveling from a very localized area uh, where there were high infection rates. But I did uh, always argue against uh, the national lockdown. I'm wondering, based on your multi-dimensional uh, approach, whether actually uh, I made a mistake there. And it would have been better to say, uh, just focus on protecting the vulnerable people in that town and to actually allow other people to travel, younger people particularly, uh, and to keep schools open, for instance, apart from kind of uh, elderly staff. Would that have been a more rational approach? So obviously we need to make distinctions between local lockdowns and national lockdowns. But my kind of question to you is, uh, you know, obviously it's retrospective and things are changing and as Bill argued we don't know a lot but it seemed to me that sometimes it might be justified to have a very uh, localised measure uh, to stop people travelling to uh, spread a virus. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's always occurred to me that um, other viruses are available and other illnesses are available and I wondered what everyone was actually scared of. Is it actually that they're scared of dying? <clears throat> End of. Um, and it feels like this virus has become the most extraordinary convenient hook on which to hang all manner of political, social, spiritual, ideological ideas and to run with them. My question is to Sinetra Gupta. When I came across your Great Barrington Declaration, I thought, now that's the answer. That's so sensible. And it was trounced. I want to know what's wrong with it. <laughs> it seems perfect. I have another question. Hello. Um, I'm the volunteer from World's Rye Group. 
And I'm here just uh, not only representing my group, but also I was a student graduated from Durham University Sociology Department. And I always did my dissertation about this pandemic. And during, during this pandemic season, would people trust, especially the public in the United Kingdom, would they trust the government and scientists about the reports? And uh, during this session, I also went back to my home country, China, which most of people would either notice that we mentioned about China in this topic. And uh, I will read some report on the BBC or other news saying that like we don't believe in China has no cases or they still don't lock down because there are still cases. On back to China, I went back to my hometown Shanghai. There is actually no cases, but people still wear masks on the street. People still do precautions. I think it's um, basically because not only because of the policy that government gives us, it's also about the sympathy we have to our family and other families to protect the vulnerable group, vulnerable group as well. So I think um, it's kind of like a mixture with policy and also try to move people by thinking of their own family, especially when I think other people can do this kind of action to protect my grandma from being sick. She's very old, obviously. And uh, I also want to ask, do you think this kind of policy mixture can be also applied to the UK society as well? Just because I, I can only see that like people don't understand government's policy by locking down, because obviously no one likes lockdown, no one likes to be locked at home and not socializing with each other. So I also wonder, like, do you think the government would be, it would be more useful that government can write some down, write some policies or like try to do some community education to people like on which, on, by using a very sociolo sociological way or like a softer way rather than just telling them straight ahead, like, we need to have a lockdown. Yeah, that's my question. Thank you very much. Lots of great questions. We'll come back out, but just quickly, Casper, do you want to respond to anything first? Um, I quite, I, just on this, the question of trust, because I, I do think this, this is, is an interesting one. I mean, I would always far rather trust the general public than the government, actually. I mean, I, I think I have, have a, lot of, a lot of trust in in people making judgments for themselves and, and you know, most people being able to make, make quite sensible decisions. Um, of course, that irrationality has been, like I was saying, you know, under the lockdown, we all start becoming a bit more irrational because of the nature of being isolated. Um, it does make me think a little bit, you know, going back, I mean, I've, I've always been interested, you know, in, in the history of, of, of ideas and in positivism in, in particular, which, which has a lot of parallels with some of the things we've been talking about, you know, with the science-driven policy and so on. Um, Auguste Comte, who, who was the, the father of positivism, um, you know, believed that actually science could answer every um, question about how society should be and not only that but that ultimately scientists should, should run everything um, but then they should lie to the public you know they should actually keep it se secret the reality of, of what was understood and they should have this sort of imaginary religion even though they, they, they knew that that wasn't true I think Marx called it shice positivismus um, but uh, <laughs> yes the uh, so, I mean, it does does remind me a lot of that stuff. And, and you actually look at the, you know, all the greatest thinkers, you know, you get Condorcet, you get Marx, you know, these are people who are actually trusted in people's judgments. So um, I think that's an interesting one. I think just, just to pick up just a little bit on the community education thing, 
it immediately worries me as soon as anyone starts talking about community education because this usually means telling people what to do. It's not about education at all these days. I mean, I'm an educator. To me, educating people is, is about encouraging people to think for themselves, to look for themselves, to read for themselves, to sort of go outside something, not to, to sit there and lecture them and tell them what to think, which is what, what people mean by community education half the time these days. Thank you. Uh, Shinetri, there was a couple directed yes, at you. <laughs> okay. Um, let's start. Well, there are lots of things here, but first with the notion of, of lockdown. Uh, one of the things I used, well, in, in a much, much earlier sort of interview, I'd, um, when lockdowns had only been going, the time scale is important and also the purpose. So if you think, what are lockdowns for? First of all, you could use a lockdown to keep a virus out. And, you know, there was a belief that that would work, which is now, of course, um, eroding. But, you know, it's, uh, is that reasonable strategy? So everything has to be judged in terms of what it's achieving in a particular location over a particular time. So maybe for a short period of time, you might say, actually, we are going to keep the virus out while we get ourselves organized and wait you know that that's not an unreasonable thing to do um the second uh, purpose of lockdown would be to keep a virus from spread getting out and that's a sort of noble lockdown right that's what people did in am or whatever i can't remember pronounce the name of the town uh with the plague they said okay we're going to you know it's a communitarian form of lockdown we're going to not let it um get out so i think the early lockdowns in italy actually to me, had that sort of a flavor, and indeed in China, was, okay, we're not going to let it get out. But, um, you know, what, over what time scale can you do that? And at what point do you say, actually, this is going to get out? But even so, you might say, well, let's just lock this area down, let the rest of the country prepare, um, and, then, and then go to a more focused protection plan. You know, these things are all... Um, up for discussion. Then there's the lockdown that we instituted, which uh, to me was completely illogical, which is a lockdown to try and stop the spread, the inevitable spread of the disease. So one has to be very careful in sort of assessing lockdowns. You don't, can't have a blanket statement that lockdowns are wrong. It's how they're implemented, who they're implemented for, what is the purpose and over what time scale. Which also then brings us to the question of focus protection. You know, why was that dismissed out of hand? And, you know, you asked the question, was it, why is it wrong? Well, the answer actually is, I don't know. The point of the Great Barrington Declaration was to have that debate. I mean, if someone had, if a whole bunch of social scientists sat down and said, I'm sorry, that's just not going to work. So be it. But, you know, what we needed to have was that debate. It seems to me, and as I said, among the knowns and the unknowns, one thing that I would have, as a um, not an expert in the field, as a, uh, a lay person when it comes to what are the effects, the social, sociological effect, um, and, and what would happen to other, what would the collateral damage be? But it seems to me that was the one thing that we knew that locked at even as, not as an expert. But obviously we needed the experts to come in and, and say, yes, this is a problem. This, this would 
cause enormous harm. And uh, yes, you can, focus protection can be enacted in these particular ways. What we asked for, the Great Barrington Declaration, was a debate, and that didn't happen. Bill, if you want to respond quickly, and then we can get out. Bill. Um, well, obviously, the WHO advocates lockdowns in the early stages of any pandemic, uh, always has done. Um, the, the $6 million question, of course, is when did the Chinese authorities know? Um, my suspicion is it was out already uh, beyond Wuhan um, by the time people started locking down. And certainly the people who breached the Chinese lockdown the most were Western countries trying to repatriate their own nationals. Um, you know, completely illogical if you follow the logic. Um, the, obviously, you've got a considerable amount of um, emotional attachment to your grandmother, and, and who wouldn't? Having said that, my experience of uh, people who wear masks, and I don't want to open a can of worms, and I don't particularly care where you sit on the mask debate, but my experience, which I think is replicated quite widely, is that most people have a mask in their pocket, which they use when they need to you know, appear to be wearing a mask. I don't know whether you wear a mask uh, several times you know, uh, a day, uh, a clean mask, but that's what all the scientific studies that suggest that masks may have a beneficial effect are based on, a clean mask put on every few hours. If it's humid, if you get wet, you need to replace it. Uh, people are always fiddling around with their masks, which kind of counters um, the, the, the science that's been done around them. So. You know, I think when I ask my colleagues at work, on the, in the main, they say, oh, I wear a mask out of respect for other people. Uh, do you, do you realise that a cloth mask is pretty much useless? You know, do, you, do you understand the size of a virus particle as opposed to you know, the gaps in the cloth? So there's all that debate. I just want to finish. You know, like, the government has to make difficult decisions. So actually, I briefly want to you know, stand in and support government. They have to make difficult decisions at difficult times in when there's considerable uncertainty about what's happening. The key then doesn't become the scientific evidence of which there is usually little at the time they make decisions. The driving factors are the culture within which the emergency emerges. And if that culture is one that is already fearful anxious, where people are living isolated from one another, have a sense of not being engaged with their society or their political leaders, not trusting their political leaders. All of these things affect what the, the decisions are going to be. Also, the presumptions that the government has as to whether they trust the people to, to behave well. The, Jenny made the point uh, about social scientists not having covered themselves in glory as opposed to scientists. Now, I originally studied science. 20 years ago, when I was talking about the precautionary principle, I was very, you know, kind of uh, wanting to defend science against uh, kind of what I perceived to be unreason. But I have to tell you that in this respect, when you're dealing with uncertainty, it's not really science that you're dealing with. And scientists themselves are not immune to the dominant cultural presumptions. They are embedded in the culture. They, too, are suspicious of the people. I'd love to ask the members of SAGE how they voted in the Brexit referendum, because I think it would reveal quite a lot about their political inclinations and their presumptions uh, about what ordinary people are like. And so they can't separate themselves completely from that. The science, of course, can be tested and verified, but the, the scientists themselves 
uh, a part of that culture. Yes, social scientists, of course, who've all read Foucault for some bizarre reason, uh, ought to have understood about medicalizing society and the use of health as an authority, an authoritarian tool. Um, and they've been strikingly um, silent about that. Uh, they had some questions at the back. Whoever's got the microphone, if you could stand. Uh, can you there. hear me all right? Yes. Uh, Martin Everson, a PhD many years ago in the PCR analysis of trace DNA of the human leukocyte antigen system. So I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert, but um, I have some relevant knowledge with regard to the scientific aspects of the response. Uh, but I wanted to take the opportunity to thank you, Professor Gupta, you and other colleagues, for very bravely and with great dignity defending what I think was conventional scientific understanding prior to the change in policy of mid-March 2020, uh, which I think was also reflected in many of the pandemic preparedness guidelines, which are still online and you could read them if you want to. Um, however, one question, 1,200 of our respected academic and scientific colleagues wrote a letter, a precautionary letter, warning that Terrible things were going to happen if the government opened up as it, uh, uh, as it did do, and nothing bad happened. Uh, three of the modelling groups, the Warwick, the Imperial, the um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine models of uh, predicting massive ho hospitalisations in the autumn, they've come to nothing. So my precautionary principle question really is, as long as you're virtuous and good and precautious, does it really matter if you're wrong and put a wrecking ball through society? Uh, and what's going on in science? And my other question is, in Sweden, they somehow managed, as far as I know, distantly, either from law or constitutionality, to stick with what was more or less in the original pandemic preparedness plan. So I, I greatly welcome your comments on those two issues. Thank you. And there's another question over here. If you stand up, if you could pass the mic to, there's a little pocket of people in there. Hi, good morning. Uh, I'm a biochemistry student at UCL. Um, but funnily enough, I'm not going to ask a question about COVID-19. Um, um, we've been doing a lab project this year and we have to comply with government guidelines because we're working with genetically modified material. That's the GMO Act uh, and COSHH which is you have to carry out risk assessments, disclose stuff. But I want to ask a question about nuclear power. <laughs> um, after the Second World War, in the, in the Cold War, you had a race which was highly politically charged between not just the USA and USSR, but also in the UK and France in order to develop nuclear power. And this led to immense pressure from um, governments as well as corporate interests obviously not in the USSR in order to very quickly develop nuclear power plants that would produce electricity in the UK initially lots of them didn't produce power because they couldn't get them to um, in the USSR they were incredibly dangerous as we later saw and in the USA they um, what they simply did was they scaled up five megawatt submarine reactors to 50 megawatt city reactors like the one in Three Mile Island and what scientists said was, you've, you've um, rushed this so much that you've introduced so many factors that we can't actually plan a way to run this reactor. And we are constantly struggling to control um, all of the factors and all of the things happening within the reactor. And 
what happened both in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island was something that hadn't happened in the not so rigorous testing, which was that uh, I think a hydrogen bubble formed within the reactor. And so this was a scenario which no one knew could happen, but the scientists said, we cannot guarantee safety. And it was under pressure from politicians and especially corporations who didn't want to spend more money doing more testing and stuff, which led to the creation of um, very risky structures. This, this is not, I mean, I don't know if that, that's not really exercising with precautionary principle. Um, in fact, it's really the opposite, but here to me the problem seems to be less the scientists and more the government and corporate interest. Um, Thank you. Hi, I'm a, I'm a professional working with risk in a corporate and legal environment, um, and I have to deal with risk and risk analysis on a regular basis. And one of, the, I guess my question is around uh, when you're looking at risk, um, or in my experience, I have to regularly recommend risk management strategies, but they often do a cost and they have an investment. What no one ever calculates is the cost or the, the savings that have been achieved by avoiding those risks. It's almost impossible to sort of assess accurately what risk has been avoided and what saving has been made, although it's very easy to assess the impact of the precautionary process that's, that's, that's taken place. So I was just wondering whether, and of course, whenever you're taking a scientific analysis, you're looking at a risk based over a period of time and a percentage probability of it happening. My understanding is that is these precautionary principles are taken to limit the worst case risks from happening. And um, we never know how many of those have been prevented by taking these steps. We do know the cost of having taken the steps in the first place. And so reconciling those two things, isn't it impossible to actually understand the, sort of the benefit that's been achieved from taking precautionary approaches um, and that's certainly on a daily basis I have to justify my own department's um, <laughs> expense and, and, and cost in terms of managing risks which we never know whether they do or don't uh, arise. Thank you. Was there another, there's someone else with a question up there. Was um, So I, I would like to kind of circle back to the precautionary principle more in general rather than just the, the COVID example or the nuclear example and my question was so could it actually be made more useful if the precaution is narrowed down to specific variables that are unknown, like in the fog that Dr. Gupta was talking about? Um, because I'm wondering if there is more pressure on the government to ask coherent questions to the researchers and to narrow down the scope of what they're uncertain about when they're making policies, could then we make sort of more precise experiments following up on those questions and sort of dissipating that fog in very specific places where the uncertainty is taking place. And can the precautionary principle thus be made more useful or at least more predictable and less easy to exploit by special interests? Thank you. Thank you. And one more question here. Yeah, I have a question for Bill, really, which is, have you got any ideas or suggestions on how to cut through the triple negative that, that is used <laughs> to support or intellectually justify the precautionary principle. I mean, what are the techniques that we should be looking for, uh, both in the political, public, or media sphere, that are clues that it's being applied well or badly? So for instance, as, as a thought, should it always be the case that a cost-benefit analysis is done when the precautionary principle is proposed? Or are there any other techniques that you might suggest through your work that could be front and center uh, for everybody to look at when, when these measures are suggested. Thank you. Uh, have we any, got any more questions? No, great. Bill, do you want to respond? Um, I think the first thing I would say, in, so responding directly to that question, the, 
it would be better if we all accepted that this is a debate between competing interest groups in society. Um, and we were fairly clear about that. I think it would also be better if, in, in all instances, it is fine to speculate about what a worst-case scenario might be, but we have to accept that we don't live our life by worst-case scenarios. And therefore, we also need to triangulate between that and the most likely scenario. I think in the, actually, the, I mean, I wanted to conclude, and I will maybe later on, on in the case of 2009 H1N1 pandemic influenza, which was also known as Mexican flu or swine flu, depending on who you want to offend. And the, you know, the, pretty early on, it was all operated on the basis of the worst case scenario. Now, swine flu had occurred previously in 1976, and the American report inquiry into that outbreak had precisely been, first of all, about the limitations of modeling, which we could come back to. Dame Deirdre Hine made the same point in relation to H1N1 in 2009, uh, but also about the need to look at what is most likely as opposed to uh, the, the worst case. Cost-benefit analysis is one possibility, uh, and it's certainly cited in the Rio Declaration. Um, there are many others. There's things called ALARP and ALARM for people who are in this game. So that's as low as reasonably possible, as low as reasonably uh, measurable. Um, but I just think accepting that this is an open public debate, rather than pretending that we're applying some basic scientific principle. Just to quickly touch on the chap at the back, you know, can we include, you know, what are the variables that are unknown? Well, they're everything, aren't they? I mean, that's the problem. You know, should we focus on the variables that are unknown? We, we don't know. That's precisely the point. Um, you know, it's called a confounding bias. It's basically that those factors and variables that you didn't know were actually driving your system that you didn't include in the, in the start of your analysis. So um, I don't think that that's necessarily a solution. There's probably other points I want we, to well, well, yeah. yeah, Jeanette, if you... Um, right, we'd... <laughs> Um, let's go to yes, uncertainty, what I said before, the, the one thing we were um, most certain about was that some of these measures would cause harm. Um, uncertainty, we had some uncertainty about, and we continue to have, how the epidemic will actually play out. And what is very unfortunate is that the projections that were mentioned, that these projections are being treated as certainties rather than uncertainties. They're actually simply hypotheses. They had a hypothesis um, in which herd immunity plays a very small role. Um, we have produced models where herd immunity plays a much larger role. Um, I think our, uh, then what you need to do, you've got competing hypotheses, wait for the data. So when you see these projections and the data don't look like those projections, the best way to think of them, rather than assigning blame and all of that, is just to say, oh, they uh, created some testable, self-consistent hypotheses, but the data don't support that, so those models were wrong. So, but that's, that, that's the job of mathematical models. Um, it, it is to generate testable hypotheses, wait for the data, and then if the data disprove them, then you say you reject them. The problem is that people treated those hypotheses as certainties, as, oh, well, this is what's going to happen, or indeed that it is even the worst case scenario. And I just don't think you can outline 
a worst case scenario in that the methodology is, is simply incorrect. And uh, again, I, I think that the, meth the proposals of how to deal with a pandemic in the given these uncertainties that were already established were, you know, they were pretty good. And I'm glad that it's acknowledged that what the Great Barrington Declaration simply did was just say, look, can't we just go back to these? So there was nothing that original about what we did. It's just that somehow there was this huge resistance to that. And I invite you to speculate more where that came from. Do you want to say something? Yeah, just quick. I mean, Deirdre Hine in that report on the 2009 H1N1 points out, you know, that the problem is numbers give the veneer of something objective in a situation where it's not objective. Uh, and g government demanded numbers. Most scientists said, we can't come up with numbers for you. There aren't enough cases. The first case which happened in Mexico is far from being typical. Uh, it was someone in a rural area a long way from a health facility. We can't generalize from that. But there's always someone who will say, oh, we'll take your money and we'll come up with a model. You know? <laughs> and so then you get your model and then you start operating on the basis of that. It's, it's extremely problematic. It's been noted before. A very quick point on the Fukushima because there was stuff about yeah. nuclear. I don't want to go into all of the nuclear stuff. But I mean, we don't make reactors in the same way as we made them in the 50s. That's the, more, that's the fundamental point. And after Fukushima, when people detected an elevated background radiation on a Scottish beach of 12 micro becquerels, it's important to point out to people who aren't in the kind of radiology game that that is the equivalent of going to the beach in the morning and saying, who added those 12 grains of sand there overnight? Yeah, that's, that's the, it's the sensitivity of our measurement that makes you be able to notice it. It's actually a testimony to human ingenuity um, and brilliance rather than something to shut down the nuclear industry for. Background radiation is considerably greater than that in many places. Okay, a couple of things. Uh, again, just to follow up on this thing about nuclear power, because I thought it was an interesting one, and, and I, th I think it is very interesting just in the context of the precautionary principle as well. If you actually look at its history, I mean, it's, it's very tied in with sort of environmental thought as well. You know, the, the resistance to the nuclear industry has always been huge. The worst case thinking has always been really strongly associated with, with nuclear power. You actually look at its record, you know, everyone always mentions the three accidents because there's only ever been three. You know, you actually look at its safety record, it's absolutely amazing. You look at the number of deaths associated with the nuclear industry, it has no comparison with any other sort of energy generation. But we don't think of it in those terms because, of course, you get one accident, and it is, it is quite terrifying. You've got bloody nuclear waste, all that. But the reality is something quite, quite different. You know, it's, it's actually really remarkably safe, and it's just got safer and safer and safer over the decades since it was first introduced. And at the same time, the benefits of nuclear are rarely discussed. It just amazes me that even now, the benefits of, of nuclear are, are so ra rarely discussed. And there's still resistance to it. Um, and you've got these, these tensions <laughs> between, you know, oh, fossil fuels, fossil fuels, but, oh, but we don't want nuclear. Well, what do we want? You know, do, do you really have to ask? Um, okay, we, one, one more thing just before, um, just thinking about modelling and uncertainty and so I mean I'm, I'm originally a mathematician my background's in mathematical modeling so I'm always skeptical of all models because I know what they do and don't do you know you, you should always not trust a model even one you've written yourself um, 
but actually there are really rigorous things you can do. Uncertainty analysis is actually a well-established field. I've not actually seen anything on, on these models that have been talked about in terms of these viruses, in terms of any sort of uncertainty analysis be, being done. Because that can be quite revealing. You can actually start start looking at, at your, your ranges of, of uncertainty and say something meaningful about the outputs of those models for, from that. Great. So if we have one more very quick question, and then uh, each of you are going to have about a minute to give your concluding remarks. So this is actually a quick comment rather than a question. Even um, better. Okay. So I just wanted to really agree with what Bill said, that uh, the cultural matrix really did have a big effect on what our, the policy in regard to COVID looked like. And I would just add my comment that I think there's two cultural errors which led to the policy which we had. The first is a rejection of Hume's is ought gap, uh, which is just due to a lack of clear thinking in the present age. The second one is an embracing of materialism, which is due to the decline of Christianity. And th what the is ought gap says very briefly is that you can know everything there is to know about something and not know how you are to act. They belong to two completely different spheres. One is science and what is effectively morality, how ought you to act. And what the error has been in saying that this is science policy is that the science says we must do this 100%. You can't disagree with it. Of course, that's not true. It's based on a value judgment. And what, what, what is it that you are to value when it comes to policy and any human action? And the materialism point is that from my conversations with people, people, um, if you think that all there is to life is just what we are doing right now and that's it, then of course, it's not going to matter if there are uh, bad effects in the future to a current policy because dying in 10 years is less bad than dying now. And just a, a, a br very brief anecdote. Uh, I, very brief. I, 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 I used to be an amateur boxer and I was punched in the head a lot. And so if we were to use the precautionary principle of materialism, someone would say, you idiot, why are you doing that? You're going to get brain damage. That had a huge amount of meaning to my life, which wasn't material, but my life was better for it. Thank you. That was impressively rapid, <laughs> Casper. Um, okay, I've probably said most of the things I want to say, so I'm just going to reiterate a couple of things. I think around trust, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff around decision-making, uh, rejecting the idea of science-led policy, it doesn't mean don't look at the science, but actually let's think more broadly, let's have more tr trust in, in ordinary people. I think the precautionary principle to me is really deeply connected with sustainability. It came out of, of sort of 1992 Rio Declaration and so on. Um, it's about preservation of the status quo. I'm not, not for preserving the status quo. I want a better future. Um, and, and the precautionary principle is, is certainly not one that's going to lead us in that direction. Um, I think last of all, just to say, well, I'm a materialist, but perhaps I mean a different thing by it to what you do. <laughs> Thank you. Shanetra, final remarks? Okay, um, I, I see this as having three layers. Um, I see a sort of logical application of it, and most of us agree on logic. So um, I, I think it, this is a useful way of thinking of it, because if you can dismiss something at a logical level, like does it make sense to vaccinate children logically? If you can dismiss that, then that's that, isn't it? Then you have the ethical layer, where you say, well, even if it does make sense to vaccinate children, uh, ethically, I don't think that's correct, or some, you know, you can have a discussion around that. And then finally, uh, there's the political dimension, which uh, is much more diffuse. So I think if you think of these, this principle as cutting through, or, or you start with the logic and then you apply it the, at these different layers, I think we can move forwards with this idea rather than just dismissing it. Thank you. And finally, Bill. Um, well, it's often said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And um, you know, I think it's a great example of the real cost of a culture of fear. 
um, and a wake-up call, I hope. You know, the cost of COVID, we haven't started mapping that out yet. I mean, this is a generational cost that uh, we've yet to see. Just to pick up on the Casper's point about fear of isolation, my, my big fear was homeschooling as it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it had a it, you know, pretty big impact on my life. And uh, yeah, I don't want to overstate it. Um, I, I do know that a colleague of mine said that the reason we should all wear masks is because if I gave him the disease and he gave it then to his child and his nursery was shut, he'd have to go back to homeschooling. And, <laughs> and I had some sympathy for that. The, um, just my very final point, I mentioned the papers I wrote about H1N1 in 2011, and I was criticised for applying hindsight to the decisions that the WHO had had to make in real time. That, that's to show that the people who criticised it that way showed that they hadn't read the paper. Because what I was doing was applying an understanding of culture to say this is what's going to come. And I literally wrote, it is possible to go further and predict right now that this will not be an isolated incident. Now, I wish I had done a lot more about that over the intervening 10 years. It's a wake-up call to me. It should be a wake-up call to you. I know a lot of what this conference is about is discussing woke politics. Some people think it's just a minor irritant or that it doesn't even exist. I want to suggest a piece of advice to you. If you don't take up the battle now, it will be part of your life before you know it. Good final rallying cry. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.